Hey, thanks for listening. I just wanted to take care of one quick note before the episode starts. Um, in the beginning of this show, I mentioned that I was going to be talking about the Democratic debates and uh, calling out a lot of the issues that I saw with those, but uh, I ran out of time. So what I did was, after editing the show, um, you'll hear it kind of end abruptly, but this show is basically going to focus around how people are making money in war and how much money is involved in those arms sales and how that works. And we're going to hold off on the Democratic debates. I might release, release it later as um, bonus content or something like that. But I just wanted to make it clear that that's why it seems to kind of end sort of abruptly. But thank you for listening and um, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Make America Garrett Again podcast, your cure for the mainstream media. This show is your safe space to talk about persuasion, politics, and the effect they have on your life and liberty. If this is your first time listening to the show, the number one thing that you need to know is that everything we talk about on this show uh, comes down to our three guiding principles. Those are peace, property rights, and free markets. So, those are the things that we look at to try to tell us where we're coming from and to, to make sure that we stay grounded in those things. Uh, it's so easy. Uh, the Republican Party, the Democrat Party, um, the, the mainstream media, all of those people really just fly by the seat of their pants. They do whatever they want to do, whatever uh, emotion something causes them to have. That's what they go with. But we want to look at these things. We want to be more fair. We want to be more rational. And, and we want to be the 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 best voice in the room on any of these topics. And my goal is to help you pick those things apart and to help you look at those things. So today, I'm going to admit to you, this show kind of snuck up on me. I was busy doing a lot of things around the house and had some car trouble I was dealing with and rearranging the studio. And next thing I know, I look up and it's time to put out another show. So I've got one article that I really want to go over with you. And then the rest of it, I just thought we would take some time to talk about what's going on. I want to talk about the sanctions in Iran and what sanctions are supposed to do versus what they actually do oftentimes. And they have a great article from American conservative uh, Barbara Boland, did a great piece with that about the defense industry. And we're going to talk about why it is so profitable to go to war and why so many people can make money off of that. And we've got several examples and she's got numbers to give with it. And then finally, going to get to our title segment, which is I'm going to debate the Democratic debates. And I just want to take a few minutes to go through those and a couple of the recurring points that I heard a lot of them bring up and a lot of the things that they're doing. I just wanted to talk about how it looks like they're going into this election and some of the things that they're talking about a lot and what I think they mean. And again, the, the unintended consequences of, of messing with the free market the way that they want to do it and, and why... Uh, a lot of these problems that they are trying to solve, their solutions are actually going to make things even worse. That's kind of a, just a brief overview of what's going on with the show today. I did want to mention that in the last episode, I talked about the girl from England who was mentally handicapped and she was pregnant and they were going to make her have an abortion. Actually, the same Monday that I released that episode, uh, another judge came through and they, they granted her request and they're going to let her keep her baby at least for now, you know, we'll see what happens when she has the baby. We'll see what happens when she gets a little bit further along. But I did want to clarify because uh, admittedly I was, I was pretty upset about that. And I imagine you were too. 
And I just wanted to give a, a brief follow-up to that, that they decided not to go through with that. But that doesn't change the things that I said about socialized healthcare, And that doesn't change the fact that when you hand over the responsibilities of caring for yourself to another person or to another entity, they take custody over you. They take ownership over you. And they're going to dictate to you uh, how they want you to live and, and what they want you to do. And, and those things are still going to happen. And, and maybe in this particular case, it happened a little bit too quickly for the public's uh, comfort, but you know, an inch at a time, they're going to get there and they're going to take those liberties and those freedoms away uh, in exchange for free stuff, which often is never free and often isn't any good anyway. So with that being covered, let's jump into Iran. So last episode came out right after Iran had shot down one of our drones and we were going to retaliate by bombing three of their sites. Donald Trump called it off at the last minute when he heard about the loss of life, decided that it wasn't fair. I don't remember if I mentioned it in the last episode or not, but one word I do want you to look out for is fair. Fair is a very powerful word and I'm pretty sure I'm getting this from a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, I believe. Uh, I better look that up. I'll put it in the show notes for you just to be sure. But the book is all about negotiating. And he was a hostage negotiator for the CIA, FBI. I can't remember. But uh, the book was fantastic. But he had lots of tips about how to negotiate with people, whether it's in your job, whether you're trying to sell something on Craigslist, or you know whether you are dealing with diplomats in another country. But one of the things that he pointed out was The word fair is very, very powerful. When you go into any kind of conversation or any kind of negotiation, really, and you say up front, listen, I just want to be fair. I just want to do what's fair here. So if if I step out of line or, you know, if I do something that you don't think that you think is too much, then I just want you to let me know because I want to be fair here. From the time you were a toddler we've kind of had this notion driven into us that everything is supposed to be fair and that everything is supposed to be equal. And as we grow up, we learn that things aren't necessarily always fair and that that situations are different, that everybody's different and what they're going through is different and things aren't always going to be the same. But we still have this kind of hidden ideal of the word fair. And when somebody says that they want to be fair, What that does is it puts your mind at ease and it tells you that you are dealing with a rational person, that you're dealing with somebody who wants to do the right thing. And so what that does is it just gives them a little bit of a benefit and it causes you to look at them in a better light, uh, which obviously if you're negotiating and you're looking at them better, then you're more likely to give in to their side. So I, I think that one of the things that Trump did by bringing that up and just saying that it wasn't a fair trade, that you know, they take down one of our drones that we kill 150 of their citizens by him bringing up that it wasn't fair. I think that that was, if nothing else, kind of a passive sort of power move for him to, to try to put himself in light as, you know, as somebody who's powerful, but doesn't want to use that power, who's willing to relent. And that's just something that I thought was interesting about that, that I wanted to point out to you. That book is fantastic, by the way. Now, Again, we know things aren't always fair in real life. One of my favorite quotes that you'll hear me say a lot, uh, especially on Twitter, is fair is for children and idiots. And that's something that Scott Adams says. And it's the truth. You know, things aren't fair and things aren't going to be fair. But if you want to make yourself look good going into your next negotiation, whether it be with your spouse, whether it be with your boss, whether it be with somebody that works for you, 
whatever it is, you go in and you say, I want to be fair. And what that's going to do is it's just going to give you a little hidden step up when we're talking about that. So what we decided was fair, obviously, was um, that we weren't going to bomb Iran, but we're going to hit them with more sanctions. And so now they're not allowed to sell any uranium. And we had talked about the Iran deal, you know, went through a pretty good explanation of it in episode two on Yemen uh, and the war with Yemen. So, you know, uh, six months to a year ago, I forget exactly what the time was, but we pulled out of the Iran deal. Donald Trump said it was a bad deal. And what that was, was we were lifting sanctions on Iran in exchange for letting the UN go in and inspect their stuff to make sure that they weren't making any nuclear bombs, nuclear weapons. If you listen to episode two on Yemen, you'll know, as I said before, the Iran deal was actually a good deal. It was a really good move that Obama made to try to appease Iran and try to appease Israel and try to appease the Republicans and get everybody just to calm down and relax a little bit. But since we pulled out of the Iran deal, since Donald Trump wanted to pull us out of that, now the sanctions are back on Iran and they are you know, kind of boxing Iran into a corner a little bit. And that's just causing tensions to rise. Now, these particular sanctions, one of them is that they are not allowed to sell uranium. And so here over the past few weeks, you hear John Bolton and Trump and uh, Mike Pompeo talk a lot about how now Iran's not holding up their end of the deal and they're breaking the, they're breaking the deal. And um, if you follow me on Twitter, you saw that I said that this Donald Trump was like uh, the girl that breaks up with you and then six months later accuses you of cheating when you find somebody new. And that's really what this is. I mean, you can't pull out of a deal and then start holding them to the deal. That's absurd. It's ridiculous. But that's what they're doing. And they're doing anything they can to try to provoke Iran. They want Iran to mess up and to accidentally you know, shoot down one of our planes, to hit one of our ships, to accidentally injure or kill uh, one of our soldiers so that we have an excuse to go to war with them. They really, really want to do that. And these sanctions are a way of also kind of helping that happen. Now, as you probably know, sanctions are basically just a blockade saying that you're not allowed to sell certain things to this country or buy certain things from this country. Sometimes you're just not allowed to deal with another country at all. Sometimes it's just certain industries. Uh, I know North Korea no one's supposed to be buying coal from them because that's one of their main uh, exports. And, you know, China got into a little bit of trouble within the past year or so because we caught them buying coal from North Korea. Iran is not supposed to be exporting uranium now. And, and um, you know, Trump's pulled out of this deal. And part of the deal was they were only allowed to have so much uranium. And now they've developed more than what they're allowed to have. But because we've hit them with sanctions, they're not allowed to sell the uranium. So... They can't sell it, but we're mad at them because they have too much. They have no way to get rid of it. And that's just another way that we're really boxing in Iran and trying to provoke them to some kind of war. But the idea behind these sanctions is kind of like, uh, I think of Kill Bill Volume 2 when Bud goes to work at the strip club and the, his boss is yelling at him because he didn't show up to work on time one day. And, uh, you know, he starts marking him off the calendar and he says, do you work this day? Nope, I'm, I'm not letting you work this day anymore. I'm not letting you work this day anymore. And he, he keeps kicking him off the schedule and he says something to the effect of, you know what? Messing with you kids cash is the only thing that makes you understand that I mean business. And, and that's what we're doing with sanctions is we're saying, listen, if you're not going to play ball with us, we're going to hit you right in the wallet and we're going to hurt the way that you do business. And we're going to make sure that it's harder for you to make money and it's harder for you to get food in 
so that you'll straighten up and you'll do what we want you to do. When leaders of countries fight, it typically doesn't hurt the other leaders. Even if you look at North Korea, where people are starving all over, a lot of the same thing, there's a lot of starvation in Venezuela as well. The president is doing just fine. The, the leader of North Korea is doing just fine. You've seen the guy, he's kind of chunky, right? It doesn't hurt the leaders, but the hope is, and the goal is that it, it hurts the people enough that when it gets hard for them to make money or it gets hard for them to get food or whatever other basic needs that they have, when those needs aren't being met because of the sanctions, that they're going to turn back and they're going to push on their leaders and they're going to say, you know, we're going to revolt or we're going to have a, a revolution or we're going to overthrow the government if they don't placate uh, the U.S. or if they don't placate the U.N. or whoever's hitting us with these sanctions, we're going to overthrow our leaders so that we can have those sanctions lifted and we can do business again and we can survive and we thrive again. And that's kind of the goal behind any of this is, is that even our leaders know, you know, it's not going to really hurt their leaders that bad. It's, it's probably not going to make a difference in their lives. Um, if you're at the top of the food chain, you're eating either way. That's not a problem. But Hopefully, if it shakes up enough people underneath you, then they start rising up and, and they tell you how it's going to be and you give in to your people uh, and therefore as a, as a byproduct, you're giving in to whoever's hitting you with the sanctions. But does this work? Is this the right thing to do? Well, looking back at our principle, you know, is this, is this supporting free markets? No, it's not. When you tell people that they're not allowed to shop from a certain place or they're not allowed to buy or spend money in a certain way, or buy things wherever they can get it the cheapest or the best, that's messing with the free market. And those always have unintended side, unintended side effects. And uh, a lot of times they don't work out the way that you want them to. So let's just say for a minute that uh, the guy next door is beating his wife. And, you know, maybe he doesn't treat his kids much better either. And everybody in the neighborhood knows it. You know, you see the, the black eye and you, you maybe hear some of the yelling and stuff breaking sometimes. So uh, the cops show up a couple of different times, and she doesn't want to press charges. So there's not much that you can do from the legal standpoint. So then maybe a couple of neighbors catch her while she's out in the yard or something like that, and they say, hey, you know, why don't you get out of this situation? Why don't you get away from this guy, and we'll give you a place to stay, or we've got somewhere where you can hide or you know, get on your feet if you're afraid to leave. We're going to help you get out of this bad situation. And she says, you know, no, I, I don't want to. Whether she's afraid for herself, afraid for her kids, you know, maybe she genuinely thinks she can help this guy. Whatever the situation is, that's none of our business. But people are offering to help, and she still doesn't want to accept the help to get out of that situation. So the neighbors come together, and they get to talking, and they say, you know, what are we going to do about this? We've got to help this woman. She's in a bad situation. We've got to help these kids out of this bad situation. So what are we going to do? Well... Let's, in our neighborhood here, let's hit them with sanctions. So what we do is we set up a blockade at the end of their driveway, and we don't let them back out anymore to go get groceries. So now they're pinned in the house, and we're kind of standing at the edge of the driveway yelling up at them with, with signs or you know maybe sending angry letters because that's what the UN does best. And we send them an angry letter, and we say, listen, we don't like the way that you're being treated. And we don't like the way that the, the leader of this household is treating his, his subjects. So we're not going to let you leave to get food until you straighten it out. 
And, and most of the time, we're telling these leaders to step down. So in, in this case, you're going to say, hey, listen, buddy, this guy, you've got to move out. You're going to let this woman have it, and, and you know maybe we'll put our own leader, we'll put our own head of the household in there instead. Um, how do you think that goes over with them? Probably not well. So their, their next step is going to be they're probably going to start maybe trying to order food in instead. So now we're stopping the pizza delivery guy at the end of the driveway saying, no, you're not allowed to go in here. You're not allowed to bring these people food because we're trying to help them understand that they're in danger and that we're trying to help them. So now we don't let them have food. Well, if, if the family is holed up in this house because we're not letting them leave and they're not able to bring food in, then they're stuck peeling whatever they can out of their cabinets and getting creative, making whatever meals they can. And maybe eventually uh, they've got some seeds in the house and they start growing a garden in their backyard. And because they're still not listening to us when we tell them that this guy needs to leave so that these people can be safe and these people can be happy, you know, they start a garden in the backyard. And uh, as they start growing their garden and doing whatever, we say, wait, no, 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 this isn't going to work either. You need to understand we're trying to help you. So maybe people on the yard on either side of them, uh, you, you knock out the water lines so that they can't get water to water their plants. So eventually, you know, maybe they really are starving. And now maybe they don't have access to clean water, which is something that we're doing uh, in Yemen as well. And we just keep taking more and more and more of the, the things that they need in their life. We take those away and we tell them, all you have to do is straighten up and do what we tell you to do. And a lot of times this means that this leader has to go. So your entire way of life, everything that you know, is probably going to have to change. But hey, look on the bright side, you'll be allowed to get food again. Let's stop for a minute. Let's put ourselves in the place of the family in the house instead. Think back on maybe some of your hardest times that you've had with your family or with a group of people you're close to. Do those hard times, do they draw you apart? Do they make you turn on each other and and want to rise up and overthrow your family? Or do they make you band together? Do they make your bond stronger as you fight against whatever is on the outside that's pressing down on you? So in our little experiment here, instead of causing this family to be torn apart and instead of causing this family to turn on on the father, who is uh, obviously not a very good guy, they're going to band together and they're going to rally around him. Because if you kick him out, they don't know who you're going to be sending in in their place. She doesn't know if she's got the money to to hold this house up and, and to run the household on her own. And so what's, what's the next thing? You know, if, if you're talking from countries, if you send another leader in, people don't want a leader that some outside foreign nation has chosen. As much as half of this country is screaming about our election and, and that Donald Trump is a, a Russian agent and that they hacked our election and that they overthrew it, can you imagine if, if some other country, if China or India or some other large, powerful army showed up at our border and said, hey, we agree with you. Your president is illegitimate. We're going to help you kick him out, and we're going to install the leader that we want. Even the the most leftist of the left, you know, your Alyssa Milano's and your Bette Midler's and your Bernie Sanders, who are, are screaming about how bad Trump is every single day, they're going to go, wait, 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 wait. No. This is our leader from our country, and we're going to 
take care of this problem in our house. And suddenly, you're not worried about what's going on in your household. You've got to stick with your people. You've got to fight this outside force that's coming in, trying to impose their will on you. When it comes to her neighborhood, is it bad that this guy's mistreating his wife and children? Absolutely. We don't want to see anybody hurt. But when you go in against people's will and you force them to make the changes that you want them to make, oftentimes it makes them rally stronger around their dictators or around the people who are mistreating them because they don't want someone from an outside entity coming in telling them how it's going to be. You know, we may have our problems, but this is our family. We may have our issues, but this is our country and we're going to deal with this. So as we push these these crushing sanctions on Iran, and we're doing the same thing in Venezuela, and and I would still love to go back and do an episode about Venezuela someday. Um, Just hasn't been in the news as much, and it's just kind of fallen out of relevance a little bit. But just because someone is in a bad situation doesn't mean that you can come in with a different bad answer and make it better. Nick Sarwark, uh, the idiot chairman of the uh, Libertarian Party, went after Ron Paul a couple weeks ago because Ron Paul was against intervention in Venezuela, and he's against intervention in in Iran. And he said pretty much what everybody else is going to say is, you know, well, you don't think that these are bad people? You don't think that this is a bad person? You don't want to do anything about it? And what people need to understand is, yes, they are bad people. In the example that we have here, yes, it is bad that this guy is beating up his wife and his kids. But by pressing on them from the outside and telling them how they're going to live their lives and what they're going to do and where they're going to live and who they're going to live with, it's going to cause them to press back against you. And it's going to cause them to rally even more around the the bad thing that they already have. So if you truly want to spread freedom, if you truly want to share your values with other people in your neighborhood or other people in your country or other people in the world, you need to freely deal with them and allow them to freely deal with you. And it exposes them to who you are and it exposes them to your ideas. You know, maybe instead of telling this woman that that she's not going to eat until she leaves this guy, maybe you just keep making more options available to her until she decides to do it on her own. You know, instead of telling these people in Iran or Venezuela or North Korea how bad their leader is, Why don't we show them how much better it could be? Because when you put sanctions on another country, you become the enemy. So when you hear people like me, when you hear people like Ron Paul, when you hear other people who are pro-peace talk about why sanctions are bad, they always come back, you know, with, you know, oh, you think think Assad is a good leader in Syria? Do you think that, that Iran and the way they treat their people is okay? You're going to take up for them? No, I'm not taking up for them. I'm also not going to go in there and give their people an even bigger reason to rally around them. And that's really important. So as this moves forward, we're going to hit them with more and more sanctions, and something's going to have to give. Uh, Either Trump changes his mind, Iran gives in enough to appease Trump, or this could come to blows. This This could mean war. Um, And it only ratchets tensions up, and it just takes one mistake where somebody accidentally shoots down the wrong plane or they accidentally wander too far into enemy airspace or whatever it is, and, you know, somebody makes a mistake and it it turns into all-out war. Where 
On the other hand, if you are having a peaceful relationship with someone, one, you're probably not pressing up against their borders to try to make their lives miserable to make things as tense as possible. And also, if some sort of accident does happen, it can be seen as an accident. You bump into somebody that you're friendly with and you say, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. You bump into somebody who you are mortal enemies with and it could very quickly come to blows. And it's very much like that when you talk about the country as well. So why are we so hell-bent on going to war with Iran anyway? Why is that such a big deal? And uh, I've got an article here from the American conservative, uh, Barbara Bolin. She does a lot of great, great writing. And I was kind of shocked to hear a conservative outlet come out against the war machine. But that's what they're doing here. This article is called Arms Dealers and Lobbyists Get Rich as Yemen Burns. If you haven't listened to episode two, I think I've plugged this almost every show that I've done so far, but... Man, Yemen was such a, it was such a good episode. Go back and listen to that. I really did everything I could to put those into terms that were easy enough to understand and to explain why we're blowing up school buses and hospitals and waterworks in Yemen and why we're not letting any food or medicine into their country. And when you find out why, it should make you furious. It should really upset you. But this article here, uh, chronic human rights violator Saudi Arabia is using American-made weapons against civilians in the fifth poorest nation in the world, Yemen. And make no defense, U.S. defense contractors and their lobbyists and supporters in government are getting rich in the process. Uh, now, the CEO of Raytheon says, our role is not to make policy, our role is to comply with it. So, obviously, what they're going to say in this situation, it's something that Trump has brought up as well. There's a lot of business in this. And, of course, these arms companies and the people making weapons and making jets, they are doing their American duty by helping us get the things that we need to defend ourselves. And they also provide a lot of jobs. So if you want to shut down the company that makes missiles, then you're going to put all of those people on that factory line that makes the missiles out of jobs. Is that something you really want to do? Do you want those people to lose jobs? Do you want them to go hungry? Well, of course not. So we're going to keep making the missiles and we're going to keep shipping them out. So she's got some statistics. Uh, since 2015, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates have waged war against Yemen, killing and injuring thousands of Yemeni civilians. Estimated 90,000 people have been killed. The number of cholera cases surged past 1 million. Uh, 113,000 children have died since April 2018 from war-related starvation and disease. Again, we've got a Navy blockade just south of Yemen, making sure that nobody is bringing in any kind of food or aid to help them. Uh, once again, we want those people to suffer so much that they are going to overthrow their own leaders that we don't like. But as we've just talked about, that's not how things work. The majority of the 6,872 Yemeni civilians killed and the over 10,000 wounded been victims of Saudi-led coalition airstrikes. Nearly 90 of those airstrikes have hit homes, schools, markets, hospitals, and mosques. In 2018, they bombed a wedding, killing 22 people, including 8 children, and another strike hit a school bus, killing at least 26 children. Now, at over two dozen of these attacks, at least, um, they have actually been able to discover parts of the, the bombs and the missiles and stuff that have struck, and they've been able to see that they came from companies like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, General Dynamics, and Raytheon. 
And um, the U.S. is the single largest arms supplier to the Middle East and has been for decades, according to a report by the Congressional Research Service. So we're even admitting that we're selling them tons of weapons. And I've also talked about how Saudi Arabia is one of our biggest partners when it comes to people that we sell planes to and that we sell weapons to. And uh, a lot of times they don't even keep up their own planes. So even if it is them flying uh, even if you have Saudi pilots flying American planes that we sold to them, uh, you've got American contracting services doing all of the maintenance on those planes, making sure that they're ready to fly every day. And at any given time, if they want to bomb a particular school bus full of Yemeni children, then it's in tip-top shape and it's ready to go. Um, it points out here, it was an American laser-guided MK-82 bomb that killed the children on the bus. Raytheon's technology killed the 22 people attending the wedding in 2018 as well as a family traveling in their car. And another American-made MK-82 bomb ended the lives of at least 80 men, women, and children in a Yemeni marketplace in March 2016. So, I, I don't mean to be reading and throwing too many numbers out at you, but I just want you to see that we have solid data on the damage that's being done over there and that on, on the innocent people that are being killed in a war be between two factions that absolutely have nothing to do with the United States anyway. Yet, Barbara Boland writes, American defense contractors continue to spend millions of dollars to lobby Washington to maintain the flow of arms to these countries. And a guy here says they see these countries like Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates as huge potential markets. They see them as massive opportunities to make a lot of money. That's why they're investing billions and billions of dollars. This is a huge revenue stream to these countries. Boeing, Raytheon, and General Dynamics have all highlighted business with Saudi Arabia in their shareholder reports. Again, what they do is they produce these weapons... And then they've got to have somebody to sell them to. So, you know, obviously they sell them to the American military. And then if there's more and there's leftovers, whatever, then they sell them to other countries that we are friendly with. So they say here, operations and maintenance have become a very profitable niche market for U.S. corporations. Defense contractors can make as much 150% more profit off of operations and maintenance than from the original sale. So they're even able to double dip on this, right? You sell them something. And then you make them pay you to continue to keep up this stuff because these are high-tech bombs, they're high-tech missiles, they're high-tech planes, and it requires a lot of maintenance to keep these things up. And who better to do the maintenance on something than the, the people that made it, the people that created it? Mentions here, U.S. weapons supply 57% of the military aircraft used by the Royal Saudi Air Force. And again, those are all maintained by uh, American companies and mechanics. In 2018 alone, the United States made $4.5 billion worth of arms deals to Saudi Arabia and $1.2 billion to the United Arab Emirates, according to a report. Lockheed Martin, involved in deals worth $25 billion. Boeing, $7.1 billion in deals. Raytheon, $5.5 billion in deals. Northrop Grumman had one deal worth $2.5 billion. And BAE Systems had a $1.3 billion deal. So, you can see so many of these companies are making a lot, a lot of money by selling weapons to other countries. Now, the way that the U.S. law works is they're not allowed to sell these things to other places unless they get a special permit from the United States government. So, you know, if you are a missile manufacturer, if you make 
a, a certain type of missile, obviously you're going to make what you can and you're going to sell that to the military, the, the American military. But anything that you have left over or anything, any chance that you see for a, a better market, you're going to look out to other countries and see who else is interested in buying this stuff. And the U.S. obviously is not going to want you to sell it to somebody that we are not friendly with. So, for example, you're not going to be able to sell your missiles to Iran, no matter how much they're willing to pay for them. So you need to make sure that you have somebody on the inside who's helping get those approvals through to make sure that you're approved to sell to as many people as you possibly can, because that's what you want to do when you're running a business, right? You want to make sure that you're available to as many customers as possible because it helps you to do as much business as possible. So uh, one guy here says lobbyists weigh in heavily on this. You want to have somebody on the inside helping you out. He says, the last time I saw the numbers, the arms industry had nearly a thousand registered lobbyists. They're not on the Hill lobbying Congress about how many schools we should open next year. They're lobbying for defense contractors. The past 18 years of endless wars have been incredibly lucrative for the arms industry, and they have a vested industry in seeing those wars continue and not curtailing the cash cow that has been for them. It says the defense industry spent $125 million on lobbying in 2018. Boeing spent $15 million. Lockheed, Lockheed Martin spent $13.2 million on lobbyists. Uh, General Dynamics, $11.9 million. Raytheon, $4.4 million, um, according to the Lobbying Disclosure Act website. So those are just the things that are being reported. That doesn't even count in any of the deals that get put under the table or anything like that. Uh, that they're trying to skirt around the rules. These are just the legal lobbying numbers that are going into this. So basically what happens is you want to put yourself in the best possible situation to sell weapons. So what you do is obviously you try to, you, you've got to make sure that you're uh, investing in your business well so that you're able to produce plenty of weapons. And then you are paying lobbyists to go and to talk to senators and to talk to congressmen and congresswomen and a lot of times what they're doing is they're just making donations to these people's campaign fund because it's very difficult to get elected and to stay elected. And really the, the main way, the number one way that you do that is you have a lot of money so that you can make sure that you can put your name out there, that you can run as much advertisement for yourself as possible. Uh, and, and these guys, they spend as much time campaigning for re-election as they do actually trying to make changes on anything. So you, know, you see somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming in, ready to change the world. She's going to turn the system upside down and everything's going to get fixed and there's all this stuff that she's mad about. But what she's going to understand pretty quickly is that um, you know, she's been in there for a year or two already. Um, before long, it's going to start ramping back up to her re-election season. And she's got to make sure that she keeps her job because they make like 175 grand a year. It's a, it's a pretty decent gig and they want to keep that. And so what she's going to do is she's going to accept money from lobbyists to make sure that her campaign fund is well-funded. And that way it's much easier for her to get reelected. And, and everybody does this. It's how they all do it. So I'm not trying to single out one side or one person, but I, I do think that a lot of times you see these, these young people in there ready to just, just grab the world by the tail. And then very quickly they realize that that's not how things work in Washington, that, that money is what makes the wheels turn. And a lot of times the wheels just turn without even anything getting done. So what you do is you say, hey, you know, I really hope, Senator whatever, uh, I, I hope that you are going to 
approve of this arms sale that I'm wanting to do with Saudi Arabia. You know, I'm hoping that you're going to approve of this. And, and just in case, just just so you know, we're going to put a little bit of money into your campaign fund. I want to make a donation to you. Um, you know, nothing nothing to do with this, of course, but I do want you to know I'm donating a lot of money, and um, I, I would like you to help me out and like you to return the favor. Got numbers here from another report. Firms uh, registered, they've reported more than $40 million being received from Saudi Arabia in 2017 and 2018. So also, Saudi Arabia is paying them to help make sure that they're allowed to buy these fantastic weapons and this maintenance service from America. Saudi lobbyists and public relations professionals have contacted Congress, the executive branch, media outlets, and think tanks more than 4,000 times. Um, much of this work has been focused on ensuring that the sales of U.S. arms to Saudi Arabia continue unabated and uh, blocking any congressional action that would end the U.S. support for the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen. So, as you remember, our Congress actually voted to end our involvement in Yemen, and Donald Trump vetoed it because there's still a lot of money from that, and they didn't push back against the veto at all. They just dropped it just like that. So it's not just money even from the lobbyists of these arms corporations. It's lobbyists from other countries who are paying us into our system to help make sure that they can continue to buy these deadly weapons from us. The Saudis have also reported doling out more than $4.5 million in campaign contributions in the past two years, like I said, including at least $6,000 to Donald Trump himself. Many cases, they've gone to members of Congress they've contacted regarding the Yemen war. In fact, some contributions have gone to members of Congress on the exact same day they were contacted by Saudi lobbyists, and some were made to key members just before and even on the day of important Yemen votes. It's really easy to go into Congress wanting to do the right thing, but then when you think about keeping your job and when you've got a check laying on the table for thousands of dollars, sometimes tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars, knowing that if you just vote to keep this going, that check's going going right into your campaign fund. And you can keep doing this job, and you can keep all of these cushy benefits, and you can keep the power of being an elected official. And you know that if you help them out this time, and you accept that check, that this is probably going to come up again in the future. And you're probably going to be able to collect another check on down the line. Once more, helping your campaign, helping make sure that you're reelected and that you keep this job indefinitely. Until you're ready to retire, if you can raise enough money, you're pretty much able to buy the seat. And uh, one of the things, I forget if it was Thomas Massey or Justin Amash, but they've pointed out several times that if you want to sit on committees, you have to raise more money for your party. So... You know, they're willing to let you sit on, uh, you know, you, you want to be the chairman of the agriculture committee or something like that. Well, they say that's fine, but, you know, you need to raise an extra $75,000 to the Republican Party, not just your campaign fund, but the Republicans in general, to make sure that you get to hold on to that seat. If you can do that, that's great because then you get to say that you sit on a committee and it makes you look even more important. And then you go back to your voters and your voters want to be sure to keep you in office then because they know that, that you're sitting in some kind of special seat that a lot of times these people you know, don't even do anything useful. But it sounds important. And when you've got somebody in an important position, it's even more important that you keep them reelected because otherwise, if they lose it, you know that seat's going to go to somebody else from some other district or some other state. So... 
all of this is motivated by money and all of this comes back to the fact that by us selling arms to other people, to other countries, to, to bomb other people, whether they're innocent or not, whatever the war is, whether it has anything to do with us or not, that your local congressman is probably getting checks from that, making sure that they remember who's taking care of them. So feel free to click that link, go through that article. Um, I didn't even read it all. I know there were a lot of numbers that I threw at you, but I just wanted to hopefully help you see the, the gravity of, of the millions and millions and billions of dollars that get passed around just to bomb people, just to blow people up. And it's one thing when those things need to be done because we're defending ourselves against foreign invaders. But when's the last time our country even dealt with anything like that? So now we're in a situation where we're able to bomb people in other countries and we're able to sell bombs to also bomb people in other countries that have nothing to do with us and often aren't even related to us. And, and, and now so many times we can do it without even sending our troops into danger. We're not even risking soldiers' lives anymore. It's just money in the bank. So you've got countries like Saudi Arabia, you've got other foreign countries paying our Congress people to keep those avenues open. You've got the arms manufacturers paying our congressmen to keep those avenues open, to make sure that they can make as much money as they want. And so they do that, and they keep it open, and then the arms manufacturers sell more weapons, and then that causes everybody else to use more weapons because we've got all of this stuff. When you've got all you've got is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Let's just bomb everything. Let's bomb as much as we possibly can. It's easy, right? And so they keep using those things, and the, weapon, the war keeps raging on because everybody's just blowing each other up. And now your weapons companies are making more money because they're selling more weapons. And that just gives them more money to pay back to the lobbyists to pay back into Congress. And so you've just got this money moving in a circle and you've got people just getting rich off of this. So when you ask, why are we siding with Al-Qaeda to fight a civil war in Yemen? Why are we fighting with Al-Qaeda to fight uh, another war in Syria? Why have we been in Afghanistan for, what is it, 18 years now? That we're sending kids into Afghanistan that, that weren't even born when this started? And there, there seems to be no objective of what to do or of what winning looks like or no progress toward that? When people ask you those questions, look back at these numbers. There are billions of reasons why right here. As always, if you want to uh, reach out to me, um, feel free to hit me up on facebook.com slash Garrett again, twitter.com Garrett again, uh, Garrett again at pm.me. And I still have that Instagram account that I haven't done anything with, but I'm there. And eventually I'll start putting some clips of the shows on there. As always, Garrett again just has one R, but thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay kind, stay vigilant, stay free. Get out of here. <laughs>